Welcome to Victory Church Podcast. At Victory, we are committed to connecting people to God, His church and their purpose. For more information, visit victorychurch.net.au. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. I want to talk to you today about faith. One of the questions that I often get asked as a minister is, what does faith look like? What, what, what is faith? How do we grow faith? How do we activate faith? How do we stay in faith? Does faith increase? And I started to do a little bit of a study about, about faith. And I discovered in the Gospels that there's three kinds of faith. There is no faith. There is little faith. And there is great faith. Now, I would imagine you're here today because you want to be a person of great faith. Amen? We all want to be people of great faith. I don't think anyone got out of bed this morning and said to themselves, I'd just really like to be a person of no faith. (laughs) Well, maybe just a little bit of minuscule faith, but there's no way I want to be a person of great. I think it's in the heart of every person who loves Jesus to be a person of great faith. And so I discovered, as I said, in the Gospels, there's three, three stories around this idea of faith. No faith, little faith, great faith. The first one is a story about a guy called Thomas. How many people know about Thomas? Thomas is one of the disciples. And uh, Thomas, after the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, Thomas um, was devastated. He thought it was all over, as did most of the other disciples. And what happened for them as they sort of went off and did some of the things that they were doing before they started to follow Jesus. But the word had gone out that Jesus was raised from the dead. And Thomas didn't believe it. He didn't want to have a bar of it. And the disciples on this particular evening were in the upper room and Jesus turns up and they get to see Jesus. And the disciples tell Thomas that Jesus actually turned up because Thomas wasn't there on this particular night. That Jesus is alive, alive, Thomas, it's real. And Thomas goes, there's no way known that I'm going to embrace that thought because I I saw him die. And the only way that I could ever believe that is if I could put my my fingers in the holes in his hands and my hand into into his side where the spear went into. That's the only way that that I could ever believe that and some of us think to ourselves well that's pretty fair you know death's the end but the reality is that for Thomas and all the other disciples they'd heard multiple times that Jesus said that he was going to come back he told it in different parables and different stories that the Son of God would suffer, but He'd be raised. they destroy the temple and the temple would be rebuilt. And He told them numerous times in regards to His story. And it reminded me that we have a tendency to listen, but not hear. I put it like this. My wife, Leonie, who is beautiful, you'll see that tonight. She is. She yells out from the kitchen, Rick, would you put the rubbish out? 
And I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm hearing some mumble coming from the kitchen. Right? All the guys are going, amen. And, and what I discovered was that I'm hearing her mumble, but what I'm actually listening to is something that goes like, would you like me to get you a drink and a sandwich? And maybe if you take your shoes off, I'd love to come in and rub your feet for a little while. It didn't sound anything like the rubbish needed to be taken out. We're only friends here this morning. So, so that's a bit like the disciples. They heard what Jesus had said, but they never took it on board. They weren't listening to what he was saying. And so finally Jesus turns up and Thomas sees him and he puts his fingers into those holes in his hands and places his hand in the side of Jesus' chest. And, and I could just imagine the joy of what Thomas would feel at that particular moment. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, Thomas, you are unbelieving. You have no faith. Could you imagine Thomas in, in that particular moment with all the other disciples that are around him? They're probably, you know, elbowing him, or at least, you know, <laughs> we're in the good books. Thomas is, he's in big trouble. He's in big trouble. He's, he's faithless. He's unbelieving. He has no faith whatsoever. You know, that word no faith means, it means to waver or fluctuate in an opinion, to be uncertain in regards to truth or a fact. And what happens is when we live in that space in doubt and unbelief is that fear tends to attack our lives, goes to war in our lives. Thomas, no faith, faithless. You imagine going through history with that title over your life. Doubting Thomas. That's where that extra statement comes from. Doubting Thomas. And then we have the second type of faith, which we call little faith. Now, most of us would be happy with a little bit of faith. We wouldn't want to, we're not happy with no faith. We'd, a little bit of faith would, would sort of do me. I, I could get through life with that. There's a story in Matthew chapter 14. And Jesus had been ministering all day and he asked the disciples to go to the other side of the lake. And he goes off and prays with the Father. And the disciples, and some of them were fishermen, they get onto the boat and it's, they, they cop a storm that is just unbelievable. Like anybody that's ever been on the water that's a fisherman has fished in the midst of a storm. But, and, and you sort of get used to it. You know how dangerous it can be, but you sort of keep it within that, that place of knowing how the wind blows and how the waves sort of rock the boat and what direction you take the boat. Well, these guys are in a storm. It is so bad that they are fearing for their life. They're, they're hiding, they're cowering down inside the boat, freaking out. Then all of a sudden, in the midst of a storm, this figure wanders its way across the waves. No, not yeah. Wow. What? 
This figure is wandering its way across the waves in the storm. These guys are hiding. Someone looks out over the boat and goes, it's a ghost. And someone else says, it looks like Jesus. And Peter looks and he cries out to Jesus, if that's you, Jesus, just say the word and I'll get out of the boat and I'm going to come to you. And Jesus says, come, Peter. And so Peter gets out of the boat and he takes a couple of steps and he walks towards Jesus. And all of a sudden, his logic goes to war with his faith. His logic looks at the storm. His logic feels the wind. His logic feels the waves underneath his feet. And the Bible says that all of a sudden he begins to sink. And Jesus reaches out and he lifts him up. He saves him. And then Jesus looks at him, and this is what really upsets me. I get upset. I'm one of those people who reads the Bible. I live in the midst of the story and I get really upset. Jesus lifts him up, looks at him and says, Are you of little faith? What? Little faith? All the other guys are hiding in the boat in the storm. Peter goes, see, Jesus didn't ask Peter to get out of the boat. Peter asked Jesus to get out of the boat. Peter was activating faith. He gets out, he walks, and Jesus says, you of little faith. And I'm thinking to myself, if Peter is recorded in time as a person of little faith, what am I? And what are you? Don't just point the finger at me. Little faith. Gets out of the boat. Walks on water. Little faith. Do you know, you ever read stories in the Bible, you go, that's just not fair. And I, I can imagine John, the disciple John, because John's the guy that sort of tells everybody that Jesus loves him more than the rest of them. It's, it's a bit like my youngest daughter. She tells everybody that I like her more than my other kids. Anyone else got kids like that? Very, very, very confident in their own abilities. And I, I can imagine John. I, John would be sitting there going, little faith. He's, he's got little... Jesus rebuked him. Where were you, John? Oh, I was hiding in the boat. I was scared about the storm. Little faith. My prayer is today that you're here because you want to be a person of great faith. Great faith. What does it mean? Now, some of us would probably say, oh, walking on water, I'd accept a little faith. But God doesn't want us to live in little faith. God wants us to live with great faith. And what does it mean to live with great faith? Well, there's a story here, and it has to do in Luke chapter 7 of a centurion, a Roman centurion. And he gets the tick 
of great faith. Now, again, when you think about ticks, I'd be ticked at Jesus because I didn't get the tick that Peter thought he should have got ticked. But the Roman centurion gets the tick. Christianity is not fair at times, is it? It's not fair at times. So we've got this centurion. Now, I'm not going to read it to you because of time this morning, but I think it is on the screen. And so this centurion, who's got a very, very sick servant, and he seeks out the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Now, think about that for a moment. A centurion, who's a part of the Roman oppression, seeking out the Pharisees to go and talk to Jesus, the Pharisees who don't like Jesus. Okay, there's something going on here. And out of this story, we get this thing called great faith. It's not making sense right from the start. And so he sends the Pharisees to ask Jesus if Jesus would do something about the centurion's sick servant. Why could the centurion order the Pharisees to do that? Well, it basically says in verse 5, for he loves our nation and he has built us a synagogue. There's a payback going on here. The centurion actually loved Israel. And we'll see how that plays out in a moment. But he loved Israel. He loved the religion of Israel. He understood who Jehovah, Jehovah God was. And he knows that the only way that his servant is going to get healed is if he gets to Jesus. And he sends the Pharisees to ask that request. And the Pharisees respond because he built them a synagogue. That's a pretty good reason to go, isn't it? In verse 6 and 7, we notice the attitude that Jesus has in regards to in regards towards Jesus. And it says that the centurion says that he was not worthy to have Jesus come to him or even for himself to go to Jesus. Let that sink in for just a moment. He's saying he is not worthy to have Jesus come to him or even himself to go to Jesus. The reason he sent the Pharisees is that he didn't feel worthy to stand in the presence of Jesus and request that his servant would be healed. But, catch this. He didn't feel worthy, but he understood how the Word of God operated in his world. Because he says these words, just say the word and my servant will be healed. He understood that Jesus, all Jesus would need to do is to say the word. He didn't need to go to meet his servant or to walk to, the, to his house with, um, with Jesus. He said, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. You know, when I read that, I thought, that is really arrogant. We're dealing with Jesus. 
the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one is to be revered. And you don't even have the courage or the respect to go and meet with him face to face, but you say to him, you just go and say the word and my servant will be healed. There's got to be something deeper going on here. And I started to realise that there are these prayers that are prayed within Scripture that are much more bold and assertive than we're ever comfortable with. You know, have you ever read them and think, how could you say that to God? How in the world, who gives you the right to question God, to wrestle with God, to argue with God? But it's fascinating that those ones who tend to understand how God works and pray prayers like that start to see results. There's a lesson in there for us. And here's the lesson, that the servant wasn't commanding Jesus. The servant, sorry, the centurion was activating Jesus' words, his own words, that says in Psalm 107 that you sent your word and healed them. He's going, Jesus, your Father in the Word says that all you've got to do is speak and my servant will get healed. I don't have to be there. You don't have to be there. Whatever you say goes. You just say it. And I know that he can be healed. That's pretty cool faith, isn't it? Pretty cool faith. Just send your Word. And heal my servant. See, the only way that you can pray prayers like that, the only way you can be that audacious, that confident, that assertive in praying prayers like that, is that you need to know who you're praying those prayers to. And you need to know how that word of of God actually works in a person's, uh, in, a, in a particular situation, in a particular circumstance. So what you know, Jesus then records that this guy has great faith because of the way that he'd actually approached him like that, in this assertive, confident nature. That's what he's recorded as, a person of great faith. What does that mean? It means to have confidence and a, perso- and a persuasion in something that God has said. Yeah, right. yeah. Do you have that today? Do you have a confidence? Are you persuaded when you read something that God says yeah. that it's true yeah. and that it works and it can go forth and transform? Or are you a person of no faith or maybe just a little faith? But God wants you to draw you into a place of great faith. Great faith. When you're persuaded that something is true, either because God says it or by supporting evidence, then you'll have faith in that truth. You'll have faith in that truth. So what's the difference between great faith and little faith? Simply put like this, great faith believes greater and more difficult truths than little faith. Great faith believes more difficult 
truths, truths, than little faith. That's all it is. So you can have great faith by believing the difficult truths in God's Word and activating them in your life. You can have great faith. It's not about walking on water. It's about believing in truth. It's about maturing in the things of God. It's interesting when we're growing in the things of God, when we're a touch immature, we tend to try to manipulate and you know, put God's hand up his back and try to manoeuvre him into what you want him to do. We do that by taking scripture and you know, we, we put it on the fridge and we name it and we claim it and we try to manoeuvre it into our circumstance and you know, you'll get your concordance out and you'll go, okay, I've got an issue with this situation and you'll look through your concordance till you find a word uh, that, that fits into your situation. You go, I'm going to activate that. And do you know what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens. Why? Because you're trying to manipulate God into doing something for you that's outside of the truth of what His Word says about your circumstance and your situation. See, little faith struggles. Little faith questions. Little faith doubts truth. Little faith is that place that we just live in when we believe, you know, the, the sort of first grade level truths. There is a God. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus was, rose again. Jesus paid the price for my sin. The little truths. Jesus gives me eternal life. They're, they're little truths, but great truths. I'm not trying to diminish the, the power of those truths. They're great truths, but, you know, advanced truths are things like this. God will supply all my needs according to his riches in glory. Now, you may say, yeah, I know that one. I've got that one on the fridge. But the fact is, if you wake up every day and you're worrying about your life, you don't really believe that truth. What you believe is what you live. What is in here is what actually comes out. You know, you can manipulate your behaviour for a period of time. But it takes a lot of energy to manipulate your behaviour to believe something that you don't really believe. And there will come a time when you'll run out of energy. A deep truth that is written on your heart, you will just automatically live that out because of why? It's what you believe. And what you believe is what you will live. That's just the way it is. And so it's really simple when you're dealing with people and you say, do you believe this or do you believe that? And they go, yeah, I do. So why do you live like that? Because you don't believe it. Oh, yes, I do. No, you don't. Because you can only believe what you live. And that's all great faith is. It's just believing and living 
the deeper truths that God has for us. There were three things that the centurion believed, and the music team can come. Number one is he believed in his own lack of merit. You know, you read through this and you discover that the centurion was a courteous guy. He was humble. He was a good man. He built a synagogue. He loved the Jews. He loved the word of God. But this is what I discovered about him. He didn't believe that he deserved anything from God. See, his request was, if you say the word, my servant would be healed. He's not saying to Jesus, you better do what I ask you to do. He's telling Jesus what he knows Jesus can do. But he leaves it up to Jesus to do what Jesus needs to do. So he's different than what many people I've met over the years in church life who believe that they deserve something from God. They deserve some type of favour. You know, they've, they've written up the favours that they can call on uh, in, when they get into a, a difficult situation. Yeah. Oh, but God, I tithe. I sowed into this. I serve. I'm on the host team. I'm on the music team. And I run a home group. And I do all this sort of stuff. And now I'm in the midst of a crisis. And so, God, I'm calling the favour. You move. You have to move because you owe me. He doesn't owe you. He's given you everything that you need already for life. And everything else that you receive from Him is a bonus. That's how cool salvation is. The second thing is he believed in the power of Jesus' words. Young people, get the Word of God in context, in your heart, and you will live what you know that you want to live. Let God write it on you. Live it. Wrestle with it. Argue with God. Pray assertive, audacious prayers. God's big enough to handle it. You know, my mother used to say to me, whenever I was down and uh, struggling with something, she would say these words, you're big and ugly enough to handle it. Now, I, I, I was big enough, I couldn't handle the ugly bit. That was unfair. But I've remembered that and I think to myself, whatever circumstance I find in, whatever I go before God with, whatever whinge I have before God, He's big enough to understand it. And not only that, He knew I was going to say it before I even said it. So take your stuff to Him. Lay it at His feet. Start to believe in it. See, the Word of God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He tells us that He'll provide all our needs. He tells us He'll give everything we need for 
life and godliness. He tells us that getting the Word into our life will wash us and transform us into His likeness. He tells us right throughout the Scriptures that these are the promises that we have in our life. That we, but here's the thing. You have to activate them. God's done His part. What's your part? Position. How do you position yourself? Do you position yourself to receive? Or do you have some sort of what I call worm theology that you feel like you don't deserve to receive from God? How dare any of us feel that way? Thinking that God became flesh and walked amongst us so we would know what God was like. But not only that, puts his eyes towards Calvary, sacrifices his life, and then rises from the dead because of you and you and you and you and you and me. For all have sinned and fallen short. The third thing is he believed in the ability of Jesus to heal from a distance. There's no secret formula. There's no secret formula. Us preachers have been trying to find it for centuries. And Pastors Tony and Kath will tell you, the more we learn the more we realise we don't know. That's okay. Do you know why it's okay? Because I'm Rick and he's God. I'm not Jimmy Barnes. I'm Rick. I'm Rick and he's God and I'm cool with that. I'm really cool with that. And there's some things that I will never understand until the other side of eternity. And you know, one day I'm going to look back and I'm going to go, ah, that was the reason. That was the reason. That's why you wanted me to walk through that. That's why I had to go through the storm. That's why I walked through the valley of the shadow of death and I fear no evil. That's a really cool thought, that, right there. So I sense today there's people feeling that they're walking through a valley that you're seeing as a shadow of death. The valley is just a shadow of death. Hear this, church. It's a shadow of death. It's not death itself. It's a shadow of death. You think that it's all over and done for you? It's just a shadow. And God shines the light in the midst of the shadow and He illuminates your circumstance. Here's the truth. Shepherds would walk their sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because that's where when it rained, the waters would run into that place and they could walk their sheep. And guess what was there? Food to sustain them. And you think that it's a valley where you're going to die. And I'm saying it's a valley where God's going to sustain you, where God's going to feed you, where God, you're going to feast at the table that God has actually...
prepared for you. See, that's the truth. That's what it's like when you take hard sayings and you activate truth to them and you understand them in context and you can say, I can walk through this. I can walk through this because that's the place where God will feed me. It was more dangerous above the valley because that's where the rods of the robber would be. Come and get them and beat them up. It was sustenance in the valley. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you have any questions, please email us at admin at victorychurch.net.au 